The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. This is Michael Drake, Chancellor of the University of California, Irvine. And whenever I get the urge to hear the voice of independent music, I tune in to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine or over the web at KUCI.org. Want to make a difference? Live United. United Way is creating real, lasting change where you live by focusing on the building blocks of a better life, education, income, and health. Help create opportunities for everyone in your community. That's what it means to live united. Go to liveunited.org for more information. A public service message brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Good morning, everyone. I'm your host, Janine. You're listening to Get the Funk Out, and this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And I have a special guest joining us, Sal Masakela. He's called in from L.A. He is a commentator, journalist, musician, and producer best known and beloved for his work hosting the ESPN's Summer and Winter X Games for the past 13 years, his culture reporting in South Africa during the 2010 Soccer World Cup, and also hosting E-Network's The Daily Ten. He's a native of New York. He's got a lot of great stuff to talk about. Also, a film coming up at the Newport Beach Film Festival, which will be, I guess, coming up next week, as a matter of fact, coming up real quick. And uh, he's got some amazing things. He does uh, mentoring and coaching. So without further ado, please welcome Sal Masekela. Good morning, Sal. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for calling in. Uh, it's my pleasure. Happy Monday to you. You too. So I am... All kinds of uh, interesting questions to ask you. You've got a great, great background. I know you spent years at ESPN. Tell me a little bit about your backstory. How you wound up at ESPN? Uh, a little bit of a little bit of luck, I think. Okay. Um, my family moved to Southern California from the East Coast when I was um, 16 years old in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, I discovered action sports, you know, um, surfing, snowboarding, and skateboarding was what everybody did nice. where, uh, where I lived in Carlsbad, California. And um, I had grown up before that, more like a, a kid of, of music and, um, and the arts uh, in New York. But that's really what, what was the arts in, in SoCal. So uh, I really got thrown into the lifestyle, and it, and it changed my life. And uh, I'd go on to, to work at some magazines, Transworld Skateboarding and Snowboarding Magazines, and in those days, especially in the mid '90s, you know, it was the action sports culture was very much underground. You know, it was it right. was subculture, and it wasn't something that really existed on television too much. Um, but someone on Madison Avenue figured out that uh, there were hundreds of thousands, millions of kids uh, that were into this this culture, and they they wanted to tap into it. So you started to see action sports on television, and uh, I started really getting an opportunity because I was a guy who would announce some of our small, little grassroots contests and events. We'd all take turns on the microphone. Nice. But as, as um, different media started to show up at our events, um, people started to want to do events on television. And so uh, I got a chance to do some emceeing uh, for some events on MTV, doing MTV Sports and MTV Sports Music Festivals. And then I did a small like lifestyle show 
uh, on Fox. Mm-hmm. And um, around that time, uh, ESPN started doing the uh, what was then known as the Extreme Games. And I, I wasn't a part of the first couple of them. I, I watched from the sidelines um, and sort of cringed, as a lot of my friends did, that uh, our, our our beloved sort of culture was being made to, to be this thing that was called extreme, et cetera. And um, ESPN sort of figured that out. They figured out that they needed to get some voices that could c- communicate the lifestyle and the culture and the athleticism of what these guys were doing. And they started asking around, and I guess somehow another my name popped up, and a guy walked up to me at a snowboard contest uh, in Breckenridge, Colorado in 1999, and he handed me his business card in a bar, and he said, uh, <laughs> are you Tom Master Keller? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm, I'm Phil Orleans. I'm the executive producer of snowboarding for ESPN's X Games, and I'm looking for you. Wow. And I looked at the guy, and, I, and mind you, this is in a bar, a bunch of rowdy snowboarders in the 90s. Right. I literally stood up in the bar, and I said, who the F put this guy up to this? It's not <laughs> funny. Yeah, really. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not funny. And uh, when I sat back down, he actually showed me this red embossed uh, red leaf ESPN, very nice business card, printed on fine stock of cardboard. You're like, I don't think that's fake. <laughs> and I said, oh, that, that actually looks like it, it could be real. And that's, uh, that's how I got my start in the ESPN. He, um, he had a vision of sort of wanting to make it more authentic. And they gave me uh, a 13-year paid broadcasting and, and television education. And that's how, uh, that's how I got my way in there. It's amazing how you took your love for skateboarding and it grew into profession. Yeah, especially since I wasn't good enough to be a professional at uh, any of the sports that I love. You know? mm-hmm. That's the thing about action sports is that they're, they're, they're lifestyle sports and that you can do them for you know, a great part of your life, skating, surfing, snowboarding, but to make it at that elite level, only a handful of people could do it. So for me, being able to be associated and work in the industry um, was the closest thing I could get to, to being a pro and then somehow or another being able to, to, to be passionate and be a voice the culture was something that I never thought would ever ever come about, but uh, I was able to, to ride the train and, you know, I've been able to have a career. You know, I, I've watched a lot of generations of pros come and go, and I've still been able to stay at the, at the pulse of it, and I feel very, very grateful. That's great. That's great. I bet you can't even imagine, if you never jumped on a skateboard, where your life would be. Yeah, I, I oftentimes think about that, you know. I grew up, um, I grew up Playing music as a kid, um, you know, playing the clarinet and the saxophone in, in bands and philharmonics, and, and I sang in the choir, and nice. I was very much a, a drama kid uh, on the East Coast, and even the first couple of years that I came to California. So I always had sort of a thought that I was going to end up in the arts, um, and especially because I, my father... Uh, Hugh Master Keller, that's just kind of how I was. I, I grew up in the first part of my life on the road uh, on music tours with my dad. I mean, I'm hitting jazz clubs around the country, and then later he would go on tour with Paul Simon on the Grayson album. My dad took me out of school for that, and mm. I got to go see the world. For what an experience. Oh, it was an absolutely incredible experience. Uh, people always ask me, where did you go to college? And I, I say, Life. The Graceland tour. <laughs> because after, after that tour at 15, uh, there wasn't really much that I was going to be able to learn in college unless I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. 
think yeah. I, I learned most of it on the road. Amazing. So, yeah, you know, I think maybe something would have happened in that direction, but it was a little intimidating to have a larger than my father and then try and follow his footsteps uh, immediately. People expected a lot from me uh, as a musician and as an, an artist, and you don't, you don't get to just sort of come up with your own way. People mm-hmm. expect you to take the baton from your dad. That's a lot of uh, pressure. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I think that um, that was the beautiful thing about action sports is that I didn't have any pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to, to do something that I was passionate about, which was all my dad ever and mom ever asked me to do was to love what I did. Um, but I didn't have to worry about a, a comparison. Nice. I don't think I would have been ready for it. Right. Let me ask you, you mentioned growing up on the East Coast. Where did you grow up? Manhattan? I grew up in Staten Island. Staten Island, okay. Um, and, and a little bit in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my dad lived in Manhattan in Harlem. Um, uptown, and uh, my mom and stepdad lived in Staten Island, so I had a sort of perfect balance between the two, and I also spent uh, a couple of years in New England with That's my great. mom and stepdad, uh, but I would still commute to New York on the weekends, stay with my dad. Mm-hmm. And probably just skateboard through the streets of Manhattan. Yeah, you know, skateboarding um, I got when, I, when, when I, my, my mom moved, uh, mom and stepdad moved to New England, um, it was a very different environment to go from an urban environment and a multicultural environment um, like New York City, and then find yourself in in, in New England, mm-hmm. where it was just all white kids, literally all white kids. You know, yeah. I, I grew up with Dominicans and, and Puerto Ricans and Italians and Jews and uh, people from from Eastern Europe and and Africans of of, of, of every country in descent. The point when you grow up as a kid and you know everything about everyone else's culture, yes, and um, you know you know what each other's eat, eat how you eat, and you know you taste each other's food, and you know a lot about different cultures. And you know when I moved to New England, I moved to a place where like it was pretty much just white people. Uh, I was the only black kid in the high school of about almost three thousand kids. And what, where in New England did you move to? I moved to a place called Cumberland, Rhode Island, and then uh, the next town over was Attleboro, Massachusetts. Oh, okay. And um, the, it was, the kids that I got along with the best when I moved to Cumberland, because it was really clicky, and you had your jocks, and you had your stoners, et cetera, mm-hmm. were, were the punk rock skate kids. You know, the kids who had 100 safety pins going down the sides of their jeans. Right. And um, dead milkman t-shirts, like, those were the kids that ended up being the coolest, most down to earth that had no agenda. And one of them uh, gave me a skateboard, and that's how I, I discovered skateboarding. What did your parents think of all this when you got into skateboarding? I think they just thought it was uh, uh, a little trivial at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought I was going to get hurt. My mom definitely was, thought I was going to get hurt. I mean, I was jumping off the back porch all afternoon when I came off of school and mm. was always cut in some way, shape, or form. But they didn't think too much of it uh, at, at the time that it was something that I was into, into, yes. you know? Yes, yes. Um, they thought it was cute that I'd get these, like, dog-eared magazines from my friends and learn about what was happening in California. Um, but they didn't think much of it. I think when we moved to Southern California and uh, when I started surfing, that's when they started to realize, like, oh, okay, he's really into this. And then when I decided not to go to college because I wanted to work odd jobs uh, so I could support my habit mm-hmm. of, of riding boards, then they were concerned, um, yeah. especially my dad. 
He was like, what do you mean you're, you're, you're surfing? Right. Um, it just didn't make sense to him. And here's a guy who's a musician and an activist who's been fighting to end apartheid, blowing his horn and, and, mm-hmm. and singing as loud as he could around the world for 30 years. And uh, his kid is, is hanging out and surfing and skateboarding and snowboarding in Southern California and thinks, thinks nothing of it. Yeah, he's like, what kind of career is that, son? Yeah. yeah. And then, then, you know, one day he finally said, you know, if, if this is what you love, figure out a way to be involved in it and to do it. He said, but I'm not going to stand by and watch you just, you know, not be productive. And I, I had a period where I thought I was being productive. I mean, I, I worked, I was cleaning offices at night and working in a bank part-time during the day, uh, and I was perfectly content. But, you know, big picture, I had no no idea what was going on. So right. Right. It, was good, it was good to have that support um, and, a, a little, you know, a little foot in the rear to, to, to just be like, okay, cool, this is what you love. Yes. That's cool, but figure out a way to be in it. Yes, and exactly. Exactly. You know, the theme of this show is get the funk out. And a lot of people have been through ups and downs in their personal lives. And do you have advice for people? Have you faced periods where you've been in a funk? And um, and yeah, <laughs> you want to share a little of that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the funk is uh, such an interesting place. And I mean, I still find myself in the funk today mm-hmm. uh, at, at, at a very point, especially when you work in a business that's, uh, that's disposable. Yes. In, in that, um, you know, you and I can easily be replaced, and sometimes you have superiors who let you know that uh, don't, don't get too uh, happy with the fact that you have fans or people that are passionate about you because we can find someone else to do your job cheaper and you can quickly be forgotten. That's it's, harsh. Uh, Harsh. It's harsh. Yeah. It's really, really harsh. And it's different than being like the best carpenter, the best electrician on the block because you're, you know, what you've built and what you is, is right there. And if anyone's got a question, you can, they can say, hey, look at what I just did. It's right there. Um, ours is a, little, is a little more disposable. And I think for me, it's helped me to be, be very, very present. And when I do get in a funk, I, I just remember that. The only person that I need to impress is myself. That's so true. Um, if I can impress myself, if I'm honest with myself and I can impress myself, then uh, nothing else really matters. And usually, if that's the case, if I do impress myself, then I do manage to impress others by default. And I think that's what's helped me to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I've tried to alter myself or say, like, oh, I should try to be a little bit more this or be a little more that, um, nothing could ever, ever, ever comes of it because you're doing a bad job of, of, of imitating others when the only thing I'm really good at is being me. And I think that applies to life in general across the board. Uh, it's, we all find ourselves in situations where you, you think for a second that maybe you can um, compromise a little bit to, to, to move forward, but it never works. So that's uh, that's my one advice when it comes to the funk. Is I really nice. try to look at myself and say, okay, where am I not being me, and how can I be better at mm-hmm. it? No, it's great advice. By the way, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Sal Masakela, and I'm your host, Janine. This is Get the Funk Out on KUCI 88.9 FM. 
You know, Sal, a lot of people um, worry about what other people think of them. They lose touch of who they are. And, and sometimes in life, you kind of have to also reinvent yourself. But you have to kind of figure it out yourself without trying to be somebody else. Yeah. You, know. you do. You I, I, actually, it's it's funny. I feel like I'm I'm in a 2.0 phase of my life mm-hmm. right now. Tell me about uh, that. I went through a period where I enjoyed a, a lot of success, especially in the mid 2000s. Um, ESPN was going great. I went from being just a reporter to becoming the overall host of the X Games, and then uh, in late 2006, I got a gig at E hosting a daily entertainment news show called The Daily Ten. I came on right before uh, His Royal Highness Ryan Seacrest every day <laughs> at 7 o'clock. And, um, you know, life was, was good. And I was doing very, very well uh, from the outside looking in. But I, I started to feel like uh, this this weird sort of thing going on inside of me where I wasn't creating or making anything of, of worth. I was putting, you know, periods and nice bows on everyone else's packages mm-hmm. and on their moments, but I didn't really feel like I was contributing anything from myself like to really give. And I went to South Africa in uh, early 2010 with my dad to, to do a documentary uh, about Africa and, and its culture during the World Cup to show people like, hey, this is the country that these games are happening in. And the soccer is great, but if you get a chance, you should come here because it's one of the most amazing places in the world with amazing people. And we had the best time, you know, uh, doing doing this road trip. And I took a leave of absence from both my jobs for a month and a half to go and to do this. And on my way home, I felt to realize that I had to make a change. I wasn't going to be an entertainment news reporter for the rest of my life. It wasn't, it was a job, but it wasn't a job that I loved. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I started putting it out there universe wise, like to see how this could end. And I sort of made a path that said, Hey, if I can get out of, if I can get out of here in, in, in a good, good amount of time, then the next thing I do will just be 100% for me. And sure enough, two months later, my show got canceled. Uh. They kept everybody on the staff except for me. Oh, and they also owed me eight months on my contract. So I was still going to get paid. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay, you know, this, this happened quicker than I thought. Uh-huh. And it was around that time that my cousin called me up, and his name is Sonny Levine, and his father produced all of my dad's great records. And he and I, he and I had lived together here in Los Angeles and had a music studio at the house, and I sing, and I sang on a lot of his projects and on his records and, and different people who came over to record at the house. I would end up being like a session singer and go to lay down some backup. And he called me up and he said, hey, man, I've been thinking that it's finally time for you to make your record. And I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> it sounded like the most daunting thing ever. Right. And he was like, he was like you got time? And you're never going to have the time that you have right now. It's like, why don't you stop BSing and let's right. go in the studio and, and just make this record? And I thought about it for like a week and finally said, yeah, what do I have to lose? Like, let's do this. And so I took about two and a half months where I did nothing else except six days a week. 
15 to 20 hours a day, except it was a bunch of great musicians wow. and write and record and, and live in this little bubble at this house that we recorded at Mar Vista. And um, I made my first solo album. What an experience. Put out recently um, called The Sound of Alakazam. Ugh. Alakazam is, you take Masakela and you, you flip it around backwards. Mm-hmm. It's Alakazam. What an experience. Yeah, it was. Um, you said something earlier. I didn't want to interrupt you, but you said, I put it out there to the universe. I put it out there. Now, I, I think like that, too. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know, I think that uh, you manifest your destinies. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people might think that it sounds really out of space and I respect the people who think that way or who, are, who, are, who want to be sensitive that way. Because it doesn't make sense to be like, well, if I just put it out there, if I think it, that it's going to come. But um, it, it takes, for me, when I put it out there, this is what I want. It takes the pressure off of having to obsess about something. Yes. Um, it, it, I, I feel like I, I, I put it out there, and, and I really make my intent known. Um, and in turn, what's supposed to happen is going to happen. You're not in charge of the how. Right. You know, the, the idea and the thought, it's intent is there, but you're not in charge of the how. So when I release myself from how things are going to happen, they tend to happen in mostly in ways that I never could have comprehended. And it was the same thing with uh, the process to getting to make this this, uh, this first record. I never would have thought that my show would have got canceled. And that, you know, how I would get the, the room to test myself and make this record. But, but that's what happened. So you didn't really, um, am I wrong here, but did you have the confidence um yeah, did you have the confidence that you really could get out there and sing, or you just needed a push also from your cousin? I knew that I could do it. Okay. I mean, I thought about it every day. Um, in, some, in some way, I, I thought about it all the time, that uh, this is a thing that I have to do, and if I don't do it, I'm going to be miserable if I don't find out. Yes. But I, but I really knew that I could, that I could do it. Um, but I, I knew that I wouldn't be able to do it by myself. And I didn't think that my cousin was going to call me and say, like, hey, I'm going to finish this record, and then it's your record. But that's what happened. And we didn't even talk about it but beforehand. It's just, we hadn't talked about it in years. We just called one day and said, hey, we need to make that record. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, great timing. Whew. Yeah, it was just, it was really great timing. And it was, it's the best thing that I've ever done. You know, I've, I've had to, I think I've gotten to do some, some cool stuff, but mm-hmm. this record is the best thing that I've ever done, and it's a lasting impression of me. It's something that lasts and to be able to, to say, hey, this is this, this, this thing I made that represented who I was and what I've lived up until that point. What does your dad think of this uh, latest endeavor? Fortunately, my dad is a fan, uh, and that was. I didn't even want to give him the record. He, he was here on tour. Uh, he'd come up, my dad lived in South Africa. And he mm-hmm. said, so, they tell me that this music is supposed to be good. But I don't know if I want to listen to it because I don't want it to be bad. You know I'm going to tell you the truth. Oh. And, I, and I said, uh, yeah, I know you're going to tell me the truth. But I said, that's why I want you to listen to it. And uh, I gave it to him. 
and he called me the next day, and he left me the most beautiful message. Uh, like just the most beautiful to have my father approve of something that I made immediately and tell me that you thought it was beautiful. Um, huge. It was just huge. I mean, yeah. that's all you ever want is his parents' approval, but to have their have him respect something that I did in his field. I mean, my father's the type of person who's going to tell me straight away, my boy. I hope you enjoyed this little field trip. Now go back to your day job and never leave it. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was it was really, really wonderful. And I'm I'm a big part of of me, like is my dad. Yeah. It's like uh your, your DNA is like a some sort of a weird tractor beam into who you're going to be as a person. And you can try and run from it as, as far as you can. But at the end of the day, like, it's going to well up, and you'll see you see that you're we're, we're a reflection of, uh, of our parents. And for me, it's, that's mm-hmm. really the case with my dad and I. So mm. the, the second that I stopped sort of trying to pretend that that wasn't the case, I was able to, to, to make something that, uh, you know, for me, it was, life, it was a life-changing experience. That's incredible. That's incredible. We're going to take a short break, Sal, and then when we come back, I want to talk about your relationship with your dad, how it's evolved, and also the film coming up at the Newport Beach Film Festival. Okay. All right. Hang tight. You're listening to Get the Funk Out. I'm your host, Janine. This is KUCI 88.9 FM. We're talking with Sal Masakela. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll chat a little bit more. And then coming up at 10, we're kicking off our fun drive right here at KUCI. Greetings, fighting anteaters. Bill Nye, the science guy here, and CEO of the Planetary Society, featured on Planetary Radio Thursday nights here on KUCI. And when I'm in Irvine, I do what you do. I listen to KUCI, I support it on KUCI.org, and I turn it up loud. Visit us on KUCI.org. Contribute. Improve the quality of life in Irvine for all the anteaters and the other citizens as well. The fun drive will be taking place from April 22nd through May 3rd. Close your eyes for a moment. Now imagine you're away from it all. Beside a crystal clear mountain stream, the cool grass crunches underfoot. Take a deep breath and drink in the sound of water cascading over the stones as birds call out from above. A real paradise like this isn't easy to come by, but it does still exist. And with your help, places like this one can last forever. You see, the Nature Conservancy works locally with communities, businesses, and people like you to preserve the most precious natural places around the world. They protect the animals that live there, the plants that grow there, and even the water. That way, this beautiful place will be beautiful forever. And we'll make sure that closing your eyes will never be the only way to get there. I'm Paul Newman. Help the Nature Conservancy save the last great places. Visit the Nature Conservancy at nature.org. That's nature.org. Hi there. I'm Janine, the host of Get the Funk Out, and we are back with Sal Mesakela. Hey, Sal. Hey. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm enjoying this Monday morning with you. You know, I really am so glad we actually rescheduled from last week to this week so I could have you the entire show. We had a lot of interesting things to talk about. Well, thank you. Tell me, we were talking about your dad. Uh, I know, you know, relationships change with parents when we're younger and as we get older. Tell me about how your relationship has evolved with your dad. 
Well, with my dad, uh, it's interesting. You know, my mom and my mom and my dad split up when I was very young. Um, my dad was sort of at the height of, of his his fame uh, as a musician. He was coming off of having number one record in the country in Grazing in the Grass and was on the road and, you know, it was the early 70s and the good yeah. times were definitely rolling and my mom decided that she needed to get off the bus. Yeah. And um, so we moved to New York City. We were in L.A. at the time and moved to, to New York and my dad was, was, you know, he was traveling a lot. He was on the road a lot and so I got to know him in an interesting way as a kid, um, not really comprehending, uh, oh, like, okay, this is my dad. Mm-hmm. So probably I was about five, five years old. Um, but he did the best that he could. You know, I, my, my earliest memories of my dad literally being a kid at the Village Gate and the Blue Note in New York City at like six years old, five years old, watching my dad, you know, play sets at like two in the morning. Oh my you know, that, that's how I spent time with my dad, and in turn, I got to watch some of the best musicians that have walked this earth, and that was how I grew up. And in the summer times, he would take me on the road for a week or two at a time as a kid, uh, you know, on buses and trains with musicians and, you know, go go play around the country. Uh, and then when I was 10 years old, um, my dad, he left. He left the country, and he was really homesick, and you know, he. This is a guy who left South Africa when he was 19. Could not go back for fear of imprisonment or death. Uh, but all he wanted to do was go home and see his family. Mm-hmm. And so, the next best thing for him was to go to Africa uh, and and try and make music music with with other Africans and see what was going on uh, in Africa. So he spent a lot of time in West Africa. He spent time in uh, Botswana and Zimbabwe which became dangerous for him because the South African government was sending over hit squads uh, Scary. into Zimbabwe and, and, and uh, Botswana to, 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 to kill expats. And one night he was playing a gig, um, and he came home, and three of his best friends were killed on the same street. And Ugh. if he had been home, he would have been one of them. Um, but when you're a kid and your dad goes away for four or five years, you don't understand why, and it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, I, I had no idea that he was fighting to change the world. I had no idea that, you know, there was a, a group of people in the world who didn't think that apartheid was going to end and didn't really know what the big deal was, and that he was fighting to change that. Um, and I, I really started to comprehend that more when I went on when I went on the Graceland tour, when he came back um, and he, we started to get close again. Um when I was 15, and he, and he said, hey, let, let's go spend some time and come on this tour. And it was actually Paul Simon who had to convince my mom uh. that that he would take responsibility for my tour. <laughs> didn't, didn't trust my dad. So uh, it was really cool to watch my mom melt under, uh, under Paul, Paul Simon, his spell. The world. <laughs> but um, so my dad and I, uh, you know, we a lot of our... our relationship has been more as friends mm-hmm. on, on the road and friends as uh, adventurers together than, uh, than than father and son. And my, my dad also battled addiction for a very long time. Um, alcohol was, uh, was, was something that he, he, 
he battled at different stages to the point where in the 90s it got bad and we didn't talk again for a few years. And oh. I'd actually gotten to the point where I didn't really know he was in South Africa and I just would hear stories and reports. And, you know, you start to just sort of say, okay, let's prepare yourself for the worst because you're probably going to get that call right. that right. you're no longer with us. And so that's kind of how I tried to have him exist in my mind. And then he got clean. My my my, my uncle literally uh, had him somewhat kidnapped and put in a, into a program in, in England. That's great. And it had happened before, so I didn't really think anything I didn't expect much, uh, but the next time I saw him, I saw his eyes in a way that I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. And, you know, he's been amazing since. And that was 1997. And, you know, at 57 years old, I think he was at the time you'd think, okay, this guy's washed up. Yeah. You know, he can at least be happy that he's sober. And, you know, he's since then gone on to make nothing but great music and, and uh, sort of reinvent his career. And, and we we really have a, the best relationship that, we, that we've ever had, you know, since, since he, he got clean. That's incredible. I have chills because, you know, you didn't have this typical father-son relationship, and then you became friends as adults. Yeah. You know? we, 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 uh, we became buddies. Mm -hmm. And I have to give a lot of credit to my mom, you know. My mom, is a, she's a superhero. She lives here in SoCal. My, my mom's from Haiti. And her and my dad left. Mm -hmm. they, excuse me. They met. They met uh, in the late '60s here in, in Los Angeles. Um, my mom's a holistic health practitioner, and so she has a very interesting approach to life. Um, but the best thing my mom ever did was she never badmouthed my father, even when my dad was at his worst. You know, when I was standing outside waiting for my dad to pick me up when we lived in Staten Island and he didn't show up again, oh, my, my mother never said a bad word about my father to me. Oh. Uh, she saved it for him, yeah. Yeah. but she never let me see it. And so uh, she never pitted me against him. And she understood uh, his shortcomings mm -hmm. and what he, that he was struggling, but she also knew he was a good man inside. And um, I'm always grateful to my mother for that, that she never turned me against my father and that I was yes. able to really have both of them at the end of the day. That really tells a lot about her character and just the type of person she is, because I can see how, you know, I'm a mom, you know, you'd want to turn around and go, you know, your father, uh, you know. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, but she never did that, and I'm eternally grateful to, to her for that. Wow. Yeah, that really says a lot about her. And tell me about this movie. So the movie... Alakazam uh, was a byproduct of the album. When you tell your friends that you're going to not take any work in television for a few months and that you're going to go and <laughs> make, make your first solo album at 39 years old, they, they tend to be concerned for you. Yeah, they're like, uh-huh. Mm. They're like, okay, <laughs> wow, that's great. And silently, they're like, man, he's, he's, he's in a bit of a crisis, you know? Yes. Maybe this is the result of the show getting canceled, he's depressed or something. And so a lot of people were skeptics, understandably such. Right. That's what, you know, friends kind of do. And I cut a couple of songs, and I took them over to, uh, to my, I have a little production company, and I just started Jason, and I played, played him some songs.
car. He didn't say anything for about you know, two minutes. And he just looked at me and he goes, this is what you're doing? And I said, yeah, man, this is what we're doing. He's like, this is crazy. Like, this is real music. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, thanks, man. That's what I wanted to do. And he said, well, we have to, he said, we got to, I got to make, we got to film this. You got to let me put cameras in it. And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, dude, trust me. He's like, this, you need to document this. And so that's how. Nice. That's how this documentary came. It was supposed to be sort of behind the scenes of the record. And then when the record was done, it ended up being a lot more than that. And he said, I can't make this about just you making the record. He's like, I have to. I got to let me talk to your dad. Yes. And then uh, he opened up Pandora's box. And next thing you know, there's a a 40-minute movie. And then we got accepted to the Tribeca Film Festival where we premiered last year. And Congratulations. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. It's been a crazy ride. It's going to come out on iTunes in a couple of months and really excited to premiere it uh, Friday night uh, at the Newport Film Festival. I really wanted to be able to show it to, to a SoCal audience and, you know, because this is where I live so much of my life. And it's That's- a mix of everything, you know. It tells the story of my dad and I and surfing and, and how the role it's played in my life and, and, and how music really has connected my father and I together. Let me ask you, as a child watching him at age six perform in Manhattan, did you feel like, you know, this is definitely something I want to do? Yes. Mm-hmm. I would always watch my father on stage with awe, and I would, you know, I learned to sort of all of his little habits and the way he plays and the way he sort of does these little body gyrations and uh, the way he, he storytells. One of the great things about my dad as a performer is, when he plays a song, it's incredible, but the way he storytells and connects with an audience uh, in between songs, he takes them on a real ride. And so I always used to envision myself up there when, when I'd watch him play. That's a gift. Like, like, like any, any son does a father to, to, to you know, you, you want to be like your dad, whatever he's good at. Right. And um, it, that definitely informed, you know, a lot of, of what I do, even as, as a broadcaster, because I didn't have any formal training. I didn't go to school. I have a communications degree. You know, I, I learned on the job. But the, the things that I do best as far as connecting with the audience is all stuff that I learned from my father. I was going to ask you how you became so comfortable in front of the camera, because you're very natural. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I think that just came from being being in that mix and, and literally just watching and, and I've watched my dad play for, you know, a hundred people in a small smoky bar mm-hmm. and I've watched him play for, you know, a hundred thousand people in a, wow. you know, in a, in a big open field or park, you know, everything from Wembley to, you know, arenas around Australia to, you know, Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. And he never handled any of those, situations, whether it's a college, a club, uh, a state or a stadium, he doesn't handle any of them differently. And uh, he always treats people the same. And he says you should be a little nervous every time. And then once it's time to go, you shouldn't feel anything. That's great. Uh, and that's advice that I've always kept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you get a little adrenaline going, get a little nervous, and then you just hit it. Get out yeah, there. he yeah. always says to me, if you're not nervous, you're not a little nervous before you go on. There's a problem. Mm. <laughs> now, I also want to touch on 
Um, you do a lot of uh, charity work. You're, you have a, a stoked mentoring organization. Tell me about mm. that. Uh, stoked is an organization that um, I had the privilege of co-founding with an amazing young man named Steve LaRosalier, uh, who lives in New York City. Uh, seven years ago, we're based in New York and L.A., and I reached a point where I wanted to figure out a way to give back, to to take uh, this the principles of this culture of, of surfing and snowboarding and skateboarding and figure out a way to give other kids opportunities to experience it. Uh, nice. Growing up as a kid, a person of color, I never really many people like myself, uh, especially not in the water on the mountain. And people would comment to me about it. They would be like, hey, man, I really think it's cool what you're doing. But <laughs> <laughs> you're like, really? Because I'm not trying to make a statement. This is, I actually like this as much as you do. So thank you, but it's, it's, it's not, I'm not trying to make a, a, a political statement here by being a, a black surfer or snowboarding. And then I, you know, I do interviews and people say, well, why aren't there more people who look like you? And I had to think about it. And the main thing was opportunity, you know? Yes. It's social opportunity, economic opportunity, uh, and kids being placed in, in that situation. And usually it ended up being an economic situation where, you know, kids do, if you live in a, in a, you know, in a, in a place where all you're trying to think about is how I'm going to get out of this perimeter, these four blocks that I live in, the last thing that you're thinking about is, you know, going surfing or going to the mountains. Right. No, no, there's, there's no influence there. Exactly. exactly. So this guy, Steve, um, he came into my life in a really interesting way. He started calling my, he saw me on television and he had this idea that he wanted to do uh, a mentoring organization for at-risk at kids uh, in action sports. He had the mentoring background and saw me as someone who obviously had the industry and the action sports background, and he was relentless. He called my agent and he would say, Steve from the program, Steve from the program. And I'd be like, I don't know any Steve from the program. Yeah. And finally, after he called probably like 25 times, my agent's assistant said, hey, are you going to call this guy back or am I just going to tell him that you're not interested? And I was like, you know what? Put him on the line. Mm-hmm. And uh, he got me on the phone with him, and I ended up talking to Steve from the program for four hours that night. What? It turned out that he was he lived in New York. We were about the same age. Uh, he's Haitian. I'm half Haitian. Mm-hmm. And we both had a love for hip-hop, snowboarding, surfing, and skateboarding. Look at that. The next day, he got out on a plane. I had him get on a plane, and he came and stayed at my house for a week. And we started this foundation called Stock. That's incredible. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's really crazy, and he really helped me to realize that I had a voice uh, and that I could rally uh, the troops as far as the industry, uh, the action sports industry, to get behind it, and I did that, and in turn, people did. They, they started contributing money and in-kind donations, and um, we didn't know what we were doing. We just knew what we wanted to do, and seven years later, we've got an office in L.A., an office in New York, after-school programs, and we have a 100% graduation rate of every, for every kid who has been in the program for the full four years. And it's basically Incredible. about just taking the principles of falling down and getting back up, mm-hmm. of uh, having to make your way in a new environment that you don't feel safe in, 
um, you know, socialization, goal setting, all things that these sports teach you as yes. an individual, but you're also part of a collective. And, and that's really unique to action sports. You know, and when you're in high school, you know, you can go to the football game and you watch 22 guys on the field, but everyone else has to cheer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in action sports, you, all you need is the equipment. You can go do it by yourself, but you're also part of this larger collective. That's right. And so I think that it's been really amazing to see what taking those principles and applying them to kids who live in, you know, Rockaway Beach, Park District of Los Angeles, uh, what that has been able to, to do uh, in their lives has been really cool. Well, and you're such a role model, you know, for them. And this is incredible. If people want more information about this charity, where should they go? Uh, they can check us out at stoked.org, S-T-O-K-E-D.org. It's not stokedmentoring.org? Uh, no, it's just stoked.org. Stoked.org, okay. Yeah. I, I asked that because I saw a link, and I just want to make sure. Yeah. Um, and Life Rolls On. We want to talk quickly about that one? Yeah, Life Rolls On uh, is an amazing organization uh, that does spinal cord research. I'm a friend named Jesse Pillauer. Wait, hold on. You, wait, time out. You broke up a little bit. Say that again? Okay. Go ahead. Uh, it's, a, it's an organization that, uh, that does spinal cord research. And oh. I have a friend named Jesse Billauer, who was a young professional surfer who in 1996 had a, a bad surfing accident at Zuma Beach. And um, oh. he broke his back and was paralyzed. He made a quad, quadriplegic. Oh. And in, uh, it was devastating. It was devastating to the surf community. But uh, Jesse could have felt sorry for himself and uh, just said that was it. And instead, he decided to become a champion for um, spinal cord research. He started this um, organization called Life Rolls On. And a little over, about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, he got back in the water. And he figured out, pushed him in on a longboard. Uh, that if he had something built to sort of wedge his elbows on a surfboard, that he could steer his board laying prone on a surfboard. I heard he was going to do it, we thought. Sure, but, uh, of course. He, uh, he's just, what he's done since is, is mind-boggling to the point where he's literally gotten pushed into like eight, ten-foot waves in, in Fiji. <sighs> At one point oh, in Hawaii, he broke his leg and didn't know it. Uh, oh, he's, he's, a, he's a madman. But what he's done to inspire others who have had these type of injuries uh, is crazy. We just did an event two weeks ago up at Zuma, actually, where families from all over the country bring uh, kids or family members who are, who are spinal cord injured. Mm-hmm. And we all get together and we get them out in the water and we push them in the waves. Oh, and gosh. to see the power that uh, getting in the ocean for the first time give somebody who's disabled is crazy and how it affects the families is uh, absolutely incredible and I just love being a part of, of, of Jesse's organization and, 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 and a friend to him and he's one of those people who just remind you to, that whatever in the world that you are thinking about in your life shut right. up, exactly. get out exactly. and get out and do something about it and get, get to live it um, and just Incredible organization, liferolson.org. They're also partnered up now uh, with the Christopher Reeve Foundation, which has really given them a, a, a greater, stronger foundation to do the work that they're doing. You know, Sal, you mentioned earlier that it was so hard leaving ESPN after, what, you said 13 years? Yeah. Okay. There is so much more to you than just one facet of your life. 
I mean, you have so many meaningful things that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I feel, I feel, I feel blessed and, and lucky uh, to still be turning the, the, the pages on, on this journey. And I have a new show uh, that I do with Red Bull Media House on, on NBC now called the Red Bull Signature Series. It's kind of like ABC's Wide World of Sports that nice. used to come on in the, <laughs> when we were kids that uh, we just do action sports events, the premier events from different disciplines all over the world. And so I'm, I That's still have my hands uh, in, in television broadcasting, but in a more of a storytelling fashion. That's and I, I have more time to, to do these things that, uh, that I'm really passionate about. And I'm just, just having a good time. I, I feel lucky. That's great. Really, really lucky. Congratulations on all these great things you're doing. And your website, uh, I want to... You just throw out your website for everybody? It's uh, salmasakella.com. Okay. And uh, if you want to check out the record, um, The Sound of Alakazam, you can go to alakazam.net. And that's just Masakela backwards. And you can download it for free. And what I'd love to do, by the way, who else would have a cool uh, name for their band <laughs> by turning their last name around? I mean, come on, Sal. <laughs> Alakazam. Just, you know, Masakela has made, you know, 40 or 50 incredible records. Uh, uh, so I said, let me, how can I be me without getting in the way of, so of him? So this, this was the best way to Alakazam. do it. Alakazam. I mean, come on. doesn't get any cooler than that. Thank you. I want to wrap the show by playing one of your songs uh, from your latest album. Do you have one you'd like me to play? Oh, wow. Um, Here comes that sound as the first track or, you know. How about, uh, I think it's, Number six, it's, it's, it's you, not, it's not you, it's here. Okay, I will do that. Thank you so much for calling into the show. It was great chatting with you. Thank you very much. Right. I think it's number seven now that I think about it. But I got it, no worries. It's not you, it's here. Okay, I got it. And I had a blast, and everybody, if you're in SoCal, come out to uh, our movie. It premieres Friday night at yep. the Newport Film Festival. Absolutely. All right, take care, Sal. Nice talking to Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. That was Sal Masakela, and if you've missed any part of this interview, I'm going to have it up on my blog, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. It'll be up within about, uh, within the hour, I'd say. If you want to find out about being a guest on the show, it's very easy. Just send an email to Janine. That's the hard part, spelling my name. It's J-A-N-E-A-N-E at kuci.org. And up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. Again, I'm going to leave you with uh, a track from Alaka Sam. It's not you. It's here. And coming up in just a few minutes, it's the kickoff of our fun drive. Please support us. We love what we do here. We're all a team of volunteers. Uh, pledges of any amount, you'll get a KUCI bumper sticker. I've got one on my car. And uh, for a $35 pledge, you become a KUCI fan. You can choose a KUCI t-shirt, which are very, very cool this year, a CD or an item listed with a minimum 35 donation. We've got uh, some of our DJs standing by to take your calls. So again, uh, support us. We ask you, I guess twice a year we do this, and it helps us support the station. Coming up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. Have a great Monday, everyone.